0: Second Comings Long before Ibn al-Athir diagnosed the success of the Crusaders as stemming from disunity in the Islamic world, the Christian cleric, Fulsher of Chartres, made much the same point. Fulsher took part in the First Crusade, and he was one of those who remained in the East long after it was over, serving as chaplain to King Baldwin I. In his official history of the Crusade, known as the Deeds of the Franks, Gesta Francorum, Fulcher marvelled at the fact that the Crusaders had survived at all. "'It was a wonderful miracle that we lived among so many thousands of thousands, and, as their conquerors, made some of them our tributaries, and ruined others by plundering them and making them captives,' he said." Fulcher made the last revisions to his chronicle in or around 1128 and apparently died soon afterwards. At that point, the Crusader states were still young and expanding. Had Fulcher lived very much longer, he would have seen the tide begin to turn. The troubles began in the 1140s, when a Turkish soldier and career politician known as Imad al-Din Zengi attacked the city of Edessa. Capital of the smallest and most vulnerable of the Crusader states. Edessa was a long way from the coast, halfway between the Latin held city of Antioch and Aleppo, where Zengi was governor, and that fact of geography alone made it vulnerable. Zengi had a reputation for drunkenness and extreme cruelty to his troops and enemies alike, but he was a brilliant strategist, with ambitions to unite as many Syrian cities as possible under his leadership. Taking Edessa from its crusader rulers was not a matter of religious duty, so much as part of a master plan to assemble from the fractured pieces of Seljuk Syria, a realm he could call his own. In 1144, Zengi appeared outside Edessa with troops, siege towers and professional diggers. The miners tunnelled beneath the city walls, while artillerymen used giant catapults known as mangonels to bombard the citizens from above. It did not take long for the Turks to break Edessa's resistance. When they broke in, civilians panicked and women and children were crushed to death in a stampede to flee. For Zengi this was a useful victory, but for the Crusaders it was a disaster. The territorial loss was one thing, much worse was the sense that nearly half a century on from the victories of 1096-99, to 99, God had ceased to smile on them. When news of Edessa's capitulation filtered back to Europe, it prompted general dismay. Yet it also presented an opportunity. Pope Eugene III was not enjoying a peaceful papacy. He was struggling with continuing schism and attempts to set up anti-popes against him. Communards had been rioting on the streets of Rome. Heretic preachers were reported to be stirring up anti-clerical feeling in France. This was a worrying set of problems, and like Urban II before him, Eugene felt he needed a cause around which to build his papacy and rally political support. He found it in the Second Crusade. The Second Crusade was closely and deliberately modelled on the First. This time, however, The driving intellectual and rhetorical force behind it was Eugene's mentor, Bernard of Clairvaux. Between them, Eugene and Bernard concocted a brilliant mission statement for their project. It was a generation since Jerusalem had fallen, they argued, and in that time Christians everywhere had drifted from the path of righteousness and self-sacrifice, which had once brought about wonderful victories. It was time to get back to basics. Now was the moment for noblemen and knights across Europe to prove that the bravery of the fathers will not have proved to be diminished in the sons. The best way they could do that was to repeat their father's deeds as closely as possible. At Easter in 1146, Bernard preached this message at a crusade council in Vézelay, designed to emulate urbans in Clermont. Although by this stage of his life, Bernard was thin and painfully frail from relentless fasting. He was still intensely charismatic. As one chronicler described it, Bernard poured forth the dew of the divine word, and with loud outcry on every side, people began to demand crosses. In a piece of bravura public theatre, Bernard ripped his cloak into strips to make enough to go around. The crowd chanted Deus Vult, of course. And in the following weeks, a popular French song averred that going crusading was a sure route to paradise for God has organised a tournament between heaven and hell. Once again, a grand announcement ignited crusading fever across the West, and all the usual ingredients were present. Bernard's announcement of the crusade, backed by a papal bull known as Quantum Predecesaurus, was followed by an intense spate of preaching and negotiation with possible military leaders. Knights and untrained civilians signed up in droves, and popular enthusiasm spilled over, as before, into zealotry, bigotry, and anti-Semitic attacks, in which a new generation of Jews in the Rhineland were beaten, robbed, mutilated, blinded, murdered, or hounded until they committed suicide. This was historical reenactment on a grotesque scale and it would have further tragic consequences. One of the few unavoidable points of difference between the First Crusade and the Second lay in the state of its secular leadership. Whereas in 1096 Urban had only been able to persuade counts and bishops to lead his armies, in the 1140s Bernard of Clairvaux and Eugene III managed to persuade two of Europe's greatest kings to take charge. When Bernard preached at Vézelay, he was accompanied on stage by one of them, Louis VII of France, reigned 1137-1180. Not long afterwards, the King of the Germans, Conrad III, reigned 1138-1152, to 1152, also succumbed to Bernard's diplomatic pressure and signed up. The involvement of two such mighty princes was a considerable boon. They would be the first kings to go crusading since Sigurd of Norway and they had at their disposal the financial and military might of all the old Frankish territories. It was hard to imagine how they could fail. But fail they did. After its promising beginnings, the Second Crusade was a disaster at virtually every turn. The king set out in style around Easter 1147. Conrad made a show of crowning his son Henry as king in case he did not return. Louis departed from Paris after great and solemn celebrations at the Abbey of Saint-Denis, flanked by his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, a company of Templar knights and tens of thousands of pilgrims. But they soon ran into catastrophic difficulty. They had decided to follow quite literally in the footsteps of the First Crusaders, along the Danube, through the Balkans to Constantinople, then overland, across Asia Minor into northern Syria. This had a certain poetic appeal and fulfilled Bernard and Eugene's call for a repeat performance of 1096-99. But in reality, times had changed, and what had been an unlikely journey in the 1090s was now an impossible one. A new Byzantine emperor in Constantinople, Manuel I Komnenos, reigned 1143-80. to had not summoned crusaders, did not want them on his doorstep, and did only the bare minimum to help them on their way. A new sultan of Rum, Kilij Arslan's son Masud, had an even firmer grip on Asia Minor than his father had enjoyed. Both Conrad and Louis' armies were savaged by Turkish warriors as they stumbled through Asia Minor. In October 1147, Conrad fought the Turks at Dorylaeum, but this time the crusaders were crushed and Conrad lost much of his baggage train. Several months later, in January 1148, Louis VII only narrowly escaped with his life when his own army was ambushed at Mount Cadmus, Honaz. By the time they all arrived in Syria, Louis was virtually broke, and both armies had lost thousands of men. Moreover, they had to reckon with a new enemy. Zengi was dead, having been stabbed to death by a disgruntled servant while he was passed out drunk in his tent. His place as the driving force behind the unification of Syria had been taken by his brilliant son, Nur al-Din, who had no intention of allowing the crusaders to upset his plans for restoring order to the Muslim Near East. So Edessa was a lost cause, and there was little hope of making gains anywhere else either. Conrad and Louis tarried for several months in the Holy Land, trying desperately to come up with a plan that would save some face and make the vast expense and discomfort of their crusade worthwhile. What they came up with was arguably worse than doing nothing at all. In July, they and the King of Jerusalem, Baldwin III, reigned 1143-63, to 63, attempted to besiege the mighty city of Damascus. It was a fiasco. The Crusaders failed even to break through the orchards in Damascus's suburbs before their discipline failed and they were beaten away. The siege was over within a week. With nothing left to do, Conrad quickly took his ship back to Germany. Louis hung around Jerusalem for six months of sightseeing and prayer and left at Easter 1149, but by this time he was estranged from his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, whose experience of the Crusade had been one of tedium and misery enlivened only by the company of her uncle, Raymond, Prince of Antioch, with whom she was later accused of having an incestuous affair. By the following year, she and Louis were divorced, and Eleanor had married the soon-to-be Plantagenet King of England, Henry II, a union that was disastrous for Louis, and brought about a state of sporadic warfare between the English and French that was only settled in 1453. It was the final humiliation of a Second Crusade it was not so much a pale shadow of the first as a terrible parody. And it was still not the end of the story. Unsurprisingly, after the failure of the Second Crusade, Western interest in any more major crusading campaigns to the East waned for several decades. The military orders continued to build their strength and small individual groups of fighters continued to travel on armed pilgrimages to Syria and Palestine. The kings of Jerusalem, meanwhile, began to eye expansion into Egypt, where the Shia caliphs and their viziers were presiding over an increasingly corrupt and fragile government in Cairo. Yet for many in Western Europe, there were better opportunities to fight for Christ, much closer to home. In Spain and Portugal, the Reconquista continued at pace. In 1147, a band of English and Frisian crusaders travelling by ship to join the French and Germans on the Second Crusade, had stopped, during their long journey, to conquer Lisbon from its Muslim rulers, a major milestone on the conquest of Western Iberia and the creation of a Kingdom of Portugal. What was more, the Almoravids, who had swept through Al-Andalus in the 11th century, were now in a state of protracted collapse they were deposed in a revolution in Morocco and replaced by an even more puritanical Muslim sect known as the Almohads. This instability made the Iberian Peninsula a ripe field for warfare and warriors who travelled there to do battle in the name of Christ were explicitly granted crusader status and the attendant forgiveness of sins by Pope Eugene III. Meanwhile, a third front of crusading had also opened up. When Bernard of Clairvaux preached the Second Crusade in Germany, groups of Saxon nobles had asked his permission to crusade on their own doorstep, ignoring the Holy Land and instead fighting to colonise lands in what is now Northern Germany and Western Poland, which were at that time home to pagan Slavic peoples, known collectively as the Wends. Bernard had given his approval, calling the Wendish unbelievers the enemies of God and demanding bluntly that they be converted or wiped out. This was of only limited consequence at the time, but its significance to later generations was huge. Although the Wendish crusade was small and sparsely attended when compared to the royal-led mission to Syria or the Battles of the Reconquista, its categorization. As a crusade was a critical event in medieval history, which framed colonialization and conversion in northeast Europe as holy war. After the 1140s, northern crusades, aiming to bring pagans into the church, baptize their people, and steal their lands, would continue until the 15th century. Given all this, the fact that crusading to the east did not simply stutter to a standstill at the second attempt is perhaps strange that it did not, owed a great deal to a Kurdish politician and general called Salah al-Din Yusuf ibn Ayyub, better known today as Saladin. Even today, Saladin remains one of the most famous, notorious and controversial characters in all of medieval history. Born around 1138 to a well-to-do Kurdish family, Saladin rose in the service of Nur al-Din, Establishing himself as a reliable civil servant and absorbing many of the older man's insights into the nature of politics in the fractious Levant, where Nur al Din spent the 1150s and 1160s piecing together a coherent realm out of the self contained city states within the Seljuk Turkish world. In the 1160s, Saladin was sent to Egypt. For several years, he fought there to resist the Crusader king. Amalric I, who had designs on expanding the Kingdom of Jerusalem into the Nile Delta. But at the same time, Saladin was part of a group within the Egyptian Muslim world that was calmly engineering the destruction of the Fatimid Caliphate, the Shia authority that had ruled Egypt since 969. In 1171, Saladin effected a palace coup which deposed the last Fatimid Caliph. Egypt's political allegiance was transferred to Nur al-Din in Syria. Religious obedience was switched to the Sunni Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad. This on its own was a massive accomplishment and one that has earned Saladin eternal opprobrium in the Shia world. But Saladin was not finished. Far from it. When Nur al-Din died in 1174, he left a delicate situation in the Near East. During the course of a quarter of a century, he had painstakingly assembled something resembling a unified Syria. But without his personal leadership, everything risked collapsing back into disorder. So Saladin set his heart on making himself Nur al-Din's effective heir and through a combination of audacious military manoeuvres and diplomatic cunning, he achieved exactly that and more. By the late 1180s, he had pieced together a realm in which much of Syria and all of Egypt were joined under his personal rule. The Abbasid Caliph recognised him as a sultan. His family took plum positions in government, and as he grew in stature, Saladin began to present himself as the saviour of Islam itself, a jihadi warrior who was fighting not for personal gain but for the benefit of Muslims everywhere. In large part, this was to distract from the fact that Saladin actually spent many years of his life fighting and killing fellow Muslims. Nevertheless, As he came to ever greater success, the Sultan was filled with what one Islamic writer called zeal for waging holy war against the enemies of God. In practice, this meant turning his attention and his military campaigns directly against the leading infidel power in the region, the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem. Throughout the 1180s, Saladin and the rulers of Jerusalem eyed each other uneasily. During this time, the Crusader realm was tortured by a series of succession crises and internal disputes, while Saladin was occupied consolidating his hold on Syria. So for a while, neither side was willing to risk all-out war, and a series of truces kept a delicate peace. But in 1187, Saladin felt confident enough to attack seizing on a raid against a Muslim caravan train by a crusader lord called Reynald of Châtillon as a pretext. In the spring of that year, Saladin stormed into the kingdom of Jerusalem with an army whose numbers could not be counted. The reckoning came on the 3rd to 4th of July when Saladin lured the hapless and widely disliked King Guy I of Jerusalem and an army comprising almost the entire military force of Guy's kingdom out to the twin peaks of an extinct volcano known as the Horns of Hattin, near the Sea of Galilee. Once there, Saladin's men cut off Guy's army from any water source, set fire to the brush and scrub of the hot parched landscape, and then rode them down. In the course of a cataclysmic battle, the Crusader army was annihilated, Guy was captured, and the true cross, the most precious relic in the Christian world, was confiscated, never to be seen again. After the battle, 200 Templar and Hospitaller knights, the crack troops of the army, were captured and ritually beheaded by Saladin's courtiers and clerics. In the ensuing months, Saladin took almost every crusader city on the Levantine coast, including the most important trading port of Acre. In October, he besieged Jerusalem itself, which was mostly defended by women and youths, since the garrison had been among the army that was wiped out at Hattin. After some token resistance, it surrendered. Saladin ostentatiously refused to allow his troops the pleasure of a massacre, but the shock still reverberated around the Western world, and it prompted the last really serious crusade to the Latin Kingdom, the Third Crusade. Preached with an urgency that stemmed from abject humiliation verging on existential crisis, it was led by a new generation of warrior kings, Philip II of France and Richard the Lionheart. They prepared their realms for war at pace, with Richard auctioning public offices, levying a 10% income tax known as the Saladin Tithe, and stockpiling huge quantities of goods and weapons as he prepared to travel east. Dozens of lords and churchmen set out to assist in the war to save God's kingdom. But this time, there was no compulsion to follow slavishly in the footsteps of old crusaders. The German ruler and Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, who did attempt an overland route, was drowned while bathing in a river in Asia Minor. Richard and Philip, meanwhile, sailed to the east, stopping at Sicily and Cyprus, bickering as they went, but in no doubt as to the importance of their mission. For good luck, and to summon the martial valour of King Arthur, Richard took with him a sword named Excalibur. Philip and Richard reached the Holy Land in 1191. In an expedition that lasted two years, they retook Acre, before Richard led a large army down the Levantine coast, massacring prisoners, skirmishing with Saladin's troops, and recapturing cities as he went. But even Richard, the greatest general of his age, came up short when he contemplated the city of Jerusalem. Twice he approached it and twice he turned back, daunted by the scale of the siege it would require. The closest he came to taking Jerusalem was when he tried to negotiate a remarkably progressive two-state solution for Palestine at large, under which the state would be ruled jointly by his sister Joanna and Saladin's brother Al-Adil, also known as Safadin. This stalled when the couple could not agree religious terms on which to marry, and eventually the project and the crusade petered out. So Jerusalem stayed in Saladin's hands, and the crusaders, as they always did, either settled down or departed. By 1192, the crusader kingdom had been rescued, but reshaped. Thanks to the intervention of the third crusaders, it had not been annihilated, but the holy city was gone and the polity itself now consisted of a string of ports dominated by merchant factions and inland castles maintained by the Templars and Hospitallers. The county of Tripoli and principality of Antioch survived, but were also somewhat reduced in size and power. All three would hold out for nearly another hundred years, but the age of mass crusades to Syria and Palestine was over. A significant shift in the crusading movement was underway. As the 12th century passed into the 13th, Christian holy war was about to be turned in extraordinary new directions. A detestable business. Pope Innocent III, long of face and razor-sharp of mind, was elected as pontiff in 1198 at the exceptionally young age of about 37. Innocent was an Italian aristocrat, born Lotario dei Conti di Segni, Lothar of the Counts of Segni. And in his short but successful career as a canon lawyer and cardinal, he had developed a grand and cosmic worldview, the result of much hard thought about both the fundamental nature of man's existence and the deepest systems of power that underpinned the Christian universe. On the first topic, Innocent had produced a philosophical polemic called on the misery of the human condition, the miseria humanae conditionis, which spelled out the unremitting terribleness and squalor of all humanity. Despite its gloomy title and pessimistic content, the Miseria became a medieval bestseller, copied many hundreds of times and circulated for generations throughout the West. On the second matter, that of the hierarchy of Western power, innocent had become a wholehearted believer in the political theory of the sun and moon, an astronomical allegory which asserted papal supremacy in all Christian realms. In this view, the pope was the sun emitting light. Royal rulers, particularly the Holy Roman Emperor, were like the moon, merely reflecting it. They were not equals. In 1198, right at the start of his papacy, Innocent wrote, Just as God, founder of the universe, has constituted two large luminaries in the firmament of heaven, a major one to dominate the day and a minor one to dominate the night. So he has established in the firmament of the universal church, which is signified by the name of heaven, two great dignities, a major one to preside over the days of the souls and a minor one to preside over the nights of the bodies. They are the pontifical authority and the royal power. This was not a new idea. By the time of Innocent's elevation to the papacy, popes had been tussling with kings for preeminence for almost 400 years. But Innocent went further than almost any other pope in history towards turning high philosophy into political reality. His papacy, which lasted from 1198 until his death in 1216, was a tour de force of legalistic papal statesmanship in which Innocent tried to impress the power of Rome over everyone and everything with some extraordinary results. In crusading terms, the immediate background to Innocent's election was the failure of the Third Crusade to seize Jerusalem. European kings were consequently rather queasy about contemplating another tilt at the holy city, despite Saladin's death in March 1193, for the Third Crusade had seemed to demonstrate only the extraordinary difficulty of repeating the miracle of 1099. Yet this did not turn Innocent off the idea of crusading per se. In fact, no pope after Urban II would be more important in the history of crusading, for Innocent took the faltering concept of Christian holy war and remade it for a new century. Just as Urban and Eugene III before him had done, Innocent understood how useful the crusade could be as a bolster for the power of the papacy. But whereas his predecessors had largely aimed the weapon against enemies outside the Christian world, Innocent decided to turn it inwards as well. Besides using crusading to hound Muslims and pagans, he would deploy it, or allow it to be deployed, against heretics and dissenters within the Christian world. This was a momentous turn of events. Thanks to Innocent, the 13th century would see an explosion in crusade preaching throughout the Western world, yet partly as a result of Innocent's reimagining of what the crusade was for, he would also see the decline and ultimately the demise of the Crusader states of the Near East. The first of Innocent's Crusades started out in predictable fashion, although it did not remain predictable for very long. Shortly after his election, the Pope issued a bull, known as Post Miserabile, which challenged the young knightly men of the West to avenge the loss of Jerusalem and the True Cross, the deplorable invasion of that land on which the feet of Christ had stood. This claim chimed well with rumours that the devil had recently been born in Cairo, which were exciting the ordinary people of Europe, and had convinced many of them the apocalypse was on its way. And it prompted a small group of Western lords, most notably the Counts of Flanders, Champagne and Blois, and their associates, to start planning for a new invasion of the Holy Land. This fourth crusade would be a daring amphibious assault in which a huge fleet of warships would strike at Alexandria on the west of Egypt's Nile Delta. There they would disgorge an army which could fight its way up into Palestine and liberate Jerusalem from the south rather than the north. It was a bold, even visionary plan. However, it required around 200 war galleys and a fleet of transporter ships with full crews as well as an army of around 30,000 men to do the fighting. This logistical obstacle would prove the Fourth Crusade's undoing. To build their galley fleet, the French turned to the citizens of the Republic of Venice who cherished their own reputation as long-time crusaders with a proud civic record for pious deeds and a keen pecuniary interest in maintaining the crusader states as trading posts. After tough negotiations, the leader of Venice, the blind 90-year-old Doge Enrico Dandolo, took on the shipbuilding contract in early 1201. Within just a year, Venice's shipyards had produced the fleet, stocked it with food, wine and horse fodder and were ready to go crusading. Innocent kept track of these developments and declared himself satisfied. Unfortunately, the French Counts then let him and everyone else down. In the early summer of 1202, they were supposed to have supplied 30,000 men and 85,000 silver marks to fill and pay for the ships. But when early summer came, it was clear that the French had neither. They had mustered less than one-third of the promised army and barely half the funds. This was not just a diplomatic disaster, it threatened to bankrupt the city of Venice. In response, Enrico Dandolo took a fateful decision. Rather than stepping back, he stepped up, effectively taking command of the crusade himself. In October 1202, he took his crusading vows, having his cloth cross pinned to his hat rather than his shoulder. A few days later, the fleet left port, with his personal galley, decked out in vermilion and silver, leading the way. They set out to make good the city's losses. Far from heading to Alexandria, the Venetians, with those French allies who had turned up to fight, sailed along the Adriatic coast of what is now Croatia. They weighed anchor outside the Christian city of Zara, Zada, which had offended Venice some years previously by refusing to pay the citizens' tribute, instead claiming allegiance to the Christian king of Hungary. Despite howls of protest from the citizens, who hung banners bearing crosses on the city walls to advertise the fact that many of them had taken crusader vows too, the Venetians and French set to work with a catapult barrage that forced them to swing open the gates. The invaders moved in and lived off the citizens for the winter, then departed in the spring of 1203, leaving the city plundered, its walls pulled down, and every building except for the churches burned to a shell. The writer Gunther of Paris called it a detestable business. Innocent III, when he heard the news, agreed, and after threatening to excommunicate everyone involved, relented and let the Crusaders off with a warning not to repeat the trick. Alas, a repetition was exactly what was coming, on a scale that was scarcely imaginable. The next city they visited was also a Christian stronghold. Indeed, it was the greatest Christian city in the world, Constantinople. The Crusaders were initially drawn to Constantinople by the pleas of a foolish young man, Prince Alexios, the son of the former Byzantine emperor, Isaac II Angelos. Isaac had taken power in Constantinople following a coup in 1185, and had spent the next ten years of his reign cordially frittering it away. He in turn was deposed by his brother, Alexios III Angelos, blinded, imprisoned and left to rot in jail. The brother was now in power and the 19-year-old Prince Alexios was after revenge. No promise was too outlandish for him to make, and so it was, with a straight face, that he had approached the leaders of the Fourth Crusade with an offer to pay them 200,000 silver marks, provide a permanent garrison of 500 knights to the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and bind over the city of Constantinople to the religious authority of the Pope in Rome. If they would just place him on the throne from which his father had been toppled. This was an offer manifestly too good to be true, but the Crusaders snapped it up. In June 1203, the Venetian led fleet sailed into view of the Queen of Cities. It would remain there for nearly a year. During that time, events moved chaotically and often fast. In the summer of 1203, Alexios III abandoned Constantinople. Isaac was pulled from his jail cell and placed back on the throne, with his son playing co-emperor as Alexios IV. With that, the Crusaders' mission in Constantinople was theoretically accomplished, but once again the Venetians had encountered a ruler who could not pay for services rendered. They took their satisfaction the hard way by plundering churches throughout the city. As a result, riots and street fighting between Greeks and Westerners broke out, and in August, huge fires were lit. Flames ripped through around 400 acres of the city's ancient centre, threatening to destroy even the Hagia Sophia and the Hippodrome. Eventually, a delicate peace was made, in which Alexios IV promised to pay his debt in installments and offered the Venetians further work, fighting his enemies in Thrace and the wider empire. But by December 1203, the money had again dried up, and the ancient Venetian doge had threatened the young emperor with deposition. In the end, Dandolo did not have to lift a finger. In late January 1204, old Isaac died, and in yet another Byzantine palace coup, Alexios was strangled to death, on the orders of a rival called Alexios Ducas Mutsouflos a nickname that referred to his enormously bushy eyebrows. In the early spring, Murtzouflos tried to get tough with the Venetians, demanding that they leave or face slaughter. The Venetians just laughed. On the 9th of April, they began to bombard the city from the sea. Three days later, they landed men on the ramparts with flying bridges from their ship's masts. With the walls breached, the whole might of the crusading army rushed in and began a dreadful sack. Homes, churches and offices were looted. Rape and murder were commonplace. Nothing was off-limits to the plunderers, including the four ancient bronze-sculpted horses adorning the Hippodrome, which were taken down and loaded onto the Venetian ships. They can still be seen in Venice today, at St Mark's Basilica. Inside the Hagia Sophia, a prostitute from the Crusader camp cavorted around the Patriarch of Constantinople's holy throne. Mutsouflos fled the city, but he was tracked as he ran and eventually brought back to his capital, where he was tortured, then hurled from the top of the Column of Theodosius. As he smashed to pieces on the ground, so the Byzantine Empire died a sort of death. No Greek was raised up in his place. Instead, The crusader Baldwin, Count of Flanders, was hailed as a Latin emperor of Constantinople. Meanwhile, the Venetians, having made back their outlay on the crusade, declined to go to Alexandria or anywhere else besides. They weighed anchor and went home to count their winnings. The Greek chronicler Niketas Choniates called the whole thing outrageous. He was not far wrong. The Fourth Crusade was one of the most disgraceful and notorious escapades in the whole of the Middle Ages, and Innocent the Third raged and complained about it bitterly. Yet for all its horrors and corruptions, the Venetians had also shown what was possible under the banner of crusading. And for all his bluster in the aftermath of Constantinople's sack and fall, Innocent would make full use of the insight. During the eighteen years of his papacy, Innocent preached five other crusades, prepared a sixth and inspired a seventh. Not one of them went to Jerusalem. Yet his crusading gaze reached every point of the compass. In Spain and Portugal, Innocent urged the Christian kings of the region to band together and fight against the Almohads. They duly did so, and in 1212, reinforced by members of the Templars and Hospitallers, as well as other Crusaders from across the Pyrenees, they crushed the Almohad Caliph al-Nasir at the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa, a milestone in the Reconquista which began a rapid drive southwards by the Christian powers, who pushed the Almohad steadily back towards the Mediterranean. Meanwhile, far away in northern Europe, Innocent was also wholeheartedly encouraging Danish, German and other Scandinavian lords to attack pagans in the unconverted northeast of Europe, a campaign known as the Livonian Crusade, in which all Christian warriors, including the newly formed Teutonic Knights, could claim forgiveness for their sins in return for colonising new lands around the Baltic. These military campaigns had dire consequences for both Spanish Muslims and pagan lives. But more revolutionary still was Innocent's use of crusading in the heartlands of Western Europe. During a dispute with King John of England over the appointment of an Archbishop of Canterbury called Stephen Langton, Innocent prepared, but did not publish, documents authorising a crusade against John. Whom he had excommunicated for his disobedience and general impertinence. And around the same time, in 1209, he preached crusade against a heretical Christian sect in southern France, who were known as the Cathars. This campaign, usually called the Albigensian Crusade, since some of the activity took place around the southern French city of Albi, would last for twenty years. Enemies Within Cathars, who were the unlucky targets of Innocent's Albigensian crusade, had been known in Europe since at least the 1170s, when a grand assembly of church leaders known as the Third Lateran Council declared their beliefs a loathsome heresy. And it was true that these were unorthodox people, who took the tradition of Christian asceticism far beyond what had been developed even by Bernard of Clairvaux's Cistercians. Their first principles were uncontroversial. Cathars regarded human flesh as, by its nature, sinful and detestable, a view which, as we have seen, innocent had once professed wholeheartedly to share. They thought the only route to escape from mortal corruption was by living according to a strict doctrine of self-denial, sexual abstinence, vegetarianism and simplicity of life. In this they were not very different from, say, the orders of mendicant friars, who were emerging in Europe at roughly the same time. However, Cathars crossed from Christian asceticism into heresy by rejecting the hierarchy of the Western Church in favour of their own private priesthood, and refusing the Eucharist, Baptism and other church rites. This put them quite beyond the pale especially for a pope like Innocent so firmly fixated on imposing command and control authority on the church at large. Catharism was also troublingly close to home, for it had a close following among citizens of towns in southern France and northern Italy. One typical Cathar-friendly settlement was the city of Viterbo, which bore the full brunt of Innocent's wrath in 1205, when the citizens elected several Cathars to the city council. You have rotted in your sins like a beast in its dung, the furious Pope told them. But Innocent found he could not stamp out Catharism with poisoned pen letters. Catharism was offbeat and extreme, but it inspired great devotion and loyalty in its adherents. Moreover, several lords of the French South most notably Raymond, Count of Toulouse, were content to turn a blind eye to the heresy, which, for all its oddness, did very little tangible harm to the moral and religious fabric of society. And so the Pope decided to act. As he wrote to Philip II Augustus of France in 1205, wounds that do not respond to the healing of poultices must be lanced with a blade. In 1208, the Pope had his casus belli when one of his leading diplomats, Peter of Castelnau, was murdered following a fruitless meeting to discuss Catharism with Raymond of Toulouse. Within weeks, Peter had been declared a martyr, and at the same time, Innocent sent letters to the great lords and princes of the West, defaming the Cathars as more dangerous than the Saracens and calling for a general effort to wipe them from the face of the earth. He summoned a crusading force to meet at Lyon in the summer of 1209 and deal with the enemies of God once and for all. Although calling a crusade on Christian soil was a drastic and unprecedented step, it found rapid favour with the king and northern French nobility. The south of France was to them an almost foreign realm, hot and sensuous and linguistically different from the north with its Occitan dialect. It had for a long time been distant from the reach of royal government. This was highly displeasing to Philip Augustus, whose goal throughout his reign was to establish his crown's authority over a greater portion of the kingdom than had recently been the case. Philip had no great wish to go crusading himself. His experience on the Third Crusade as a younger man had been quite enough excitement but he still lent his tacit support of the Crusade against the Cathars within his realm, calculating that it would be useful means of breaking the autonomy of men like the Count of Toulouse. Command of the anti-Cathar army was entrusted to an experienced Crusader, Simon de Montfort, a veteran of the Fourth Crusade and a tireless, stiff-necked zealot whose life's driving passion was slaughtering infidels wherever he could find them. In the Albigensian Crusade, he found the perfect outlet for his bloodlust. From June 1209, for a full two years, Simon de Montfort and his fellow crusaders cut a swathe through the French south, besieging towns suspected of harbouring Cathars and burning, slicing or torturing people to death. De Montfort hunted heretics in places like Béziers and Carcassonne, Minerve, and Castelnaudry, and when he found them, He showed no mercy. According to one of the authors of a chronicle known as the Song of the Cathar Wars, there was so great a killing that it will be talked of till the end of the world. The crusaders torched and bombarded their way around Cathar country, massacring citizens in their thousands to ensure no heretic would escape their punishment. They sang religious anthems like Veni Creator Spiritus, and they threw women down wells. By 1210, their victims numbered in the tens of thousands, and De Montfort was in no mood to quit. Indeed, he was having such success that he had started to assemble a large southern lordship of his own, created out of lands he had confiscated from lords who refused to back his actions against heretics. By late 1212, he was in charge of a considerable portion of southern France, which he governed according to a set of strict and divisive laws called the Statutes of Pamiers. He was also completely out of control. In 1213, de Montfort attempted to extend his crusader state into territory belonging to Pedro II, King of Aragon and Count of Barcelona, whose dominions stretched north of the Pyrenees. Pedro was a Reconquista hero. Who had been crowned king by Innocent himself, and who in 1212 had taken part in the huge battle against the Almohads at Las Navas de No matter. On the 12th of September 1213, de Montfort drew Pedro into battle at Muret, not far from Toulouse, crushed his army, and killed the Aragonese king. Whatever danger Catharism had threatened to the unity of the church. No Cathars had been responsible for slaughtering crusader monarchs. It was de Montfort who now seemed to represent the greatest threat to order in the French south. Innocent, however, either did not care or could not rein in his man. The Pope had now begun to plan a fifth crusade, which was to be announced at a fourth Lateran council in 1215, with its target the Nile Delta city of Damietta. And while de Montfort was certainly a distracting presence during the preparations for this mission, he was not distracting enough to convince Innocent of the need to call a halt to persecuting Christ's enemies. So the Pope allowed the persecutions to continue, and de Montfort was still alive and active in June 1216, when Innocent fell sick and died at Perugia, at around the age of 55. De Montfort continued to enjoy his role as scourge of the Cathars for another two years, before he too died, killed while besieging the city of Toulouse, where he was struck by a rock hurled from a catapult operated by a group of the city's women. It was a lucky hit, but the damage had long ago been done. After de Montfort died, the Cathar Wars were taken on by Philip Augustus's son, Louis the Lion, who in 1223 succeeded his father as Louis VIII of France. Louis continued the war on southern heretics until the end of the 1220s, by which time he had successfully stripped away the county of Toulouse of any last vestiges of independence. Whether this had tackled the root problem of heresy was much less certain. Catharism remained alive in the South until the 14th century, no more or less dangerous than it had ever been to the moral fabric of Western society. So whatever the Albigensian Crusade had achieved in terms of political reorganisation, it had not been able to crush the spirit of the heretics themselves. But it had normalised the sight of Crusaders fighting within the Christian realms of the West. During the 13th and 14th centuries, this would become an increasingly familiar sight. Crusaders Everywhere The Fifth Crusade, planned by Innocent and promulgated at the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215, was eventually overseen by his successor Honorius III, with very limited success. Despite the deployment of large, predominantly French and German armies to assault Damietta, four years of war between 1217 and 1221 produced no lasting gains. Damietta was taken and lost, and an attempt to storm the Egyptian capital Cairo was easily defeated by the Sultan, Saladin's nephew, al-Kamil, who flooded the Nile Valley and sunk the Crusader army into fields of sapping mud. This, along with an almost identical crusade to Damietta led by Louis IX of France in 1248-54, were the last, faintly farcical mass assaults on the east, which was thereafter left increasingly to the defence of the military orders bolstered occasionally by independent expeditions raised privately by great lords. But this did not mean an end to crusading, for as the age of the great campaigns diminished, many smaller fields of crusader warfare emerged in their stead. In Spain, the victory over the Almohads at Las Navas de Tolosa in 1212 began a new phase of the Reconquista, in which the Christian powers were increasingly ascendant working their way steadily southwards until, by 1252, only the emirate of Granada, in the far south of the peninsula, remained under Islamic rule. Meanwhile, in northern Europe, crusading became effectively permanent, as the Teutonic Knights put down roots in frontier country and led annual raids into pagan lands around the Baltic regions, known generically as Prussia to convert unbelievers by force and carve out new estates for Christian secular lords and bishops. This was a slow but ultimately successful process, which for a time created a military crusader state in the Baltic, stretching all the way from what is now northern Poland to Estonia. At the same time, as we shall see in chapter 9, the crusade became a means of defending the borders of Christendom in Eastern Europe, from a new world superpower, the Mongols. Yet while these crusaders, and others like them, were at least fighting non-Christians, from the 13th century onwards, many others took their vows to fight in Christ's name and ended up making war on their co-religionists. Indeed, one of the most notorious crusading leaders, and later targets, of the age was the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II Hohenstaufen. One of the most striking men of his age, Frederick was nicknamed the wonder of the world, Stupor Mundi, for his piercing intellect, political genius and perpetual restlessness. Raised on Sicily, where he became king at the age of three in 1198, Frederick was possessed of an easy familiarity with the Arabic language and Islamic culture, as well as his own Christian faith. He also had a lifelong obsession with scientific inquiry, natural philosophy, mathematics and zoology, and wrote a highly regarded textbook on the art of hunting with birds of prey. In 1220, Frederick was crowned as Holy Roman Emperor, extending his authority from Syracusa in the south to the German borders with Denmark in the north. Even without accounting for the force of his personality, he was the dominant secular ruler in the Christian world. And when he turned his attention to crusading, he achieved spectacular results. Although he never led a mass crusade to the east, Frederick did travel to the Kingdom of Jerusalem in the late 1220s, where he used his rare rapport with the Sultan al Kamil to achieve what many had given up as impossible, the return of Christian rule to the holy city. In a negotiated settlement brokered via personal diplomacy between himself and the sultan, Frederick secured recognition for Christian oversight on the understanding that Muslims would be allowed unmolested access to the Haram al-Sharif so that they could worship at the Dome of the Rock and Al-Aqsa Mosque. Frederick claimed the title and crown of King of Jerusalem for himself but left day-to-day government in the hands of appointed deputies when he returned to Europe. Although this happy balance of powers lasted only 16 years, it was a miraculously even-handed and bloodless revolution for which Frederick might have expected the thanks and adulation of all of Christendom. Unfortunately, he received no such thing. During the course of his life, Frederick Hohenstaufen quarrelled with popes constantly and was excommunicated a remarkable four times. Indeed, at the very moment that he was crowned King of Jerusalem at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in 1229, he was technically barred from communion with the Roman Church. He made a mortal enemy of Pope Gregory the Ninth, reigned 1227 to 41, an imperious and querulous individual cut from much the same cloth as Innocent the Third, whose driving mission was to stamp out heresy, persecute unbelievers everywhere, and make all earthly princes aware that their power was nothing when compared with the papal majesty. Terrified that Frederick's power in Sicily, southern Italy, Germany and Lombardy would enable the Hohenstaufen dynasty to surround and dominate popes in the papal states, Gregory repeatedly accused Frederick of heresy, and encouraged other rulers to invade Hohenstaufen lands. This enmity outlived both men. From the 1240s until the 1260s, successive popes preached warfare against Frederick and his successors, encouraging belligerents to wear crusader crosses, claim remission of sins and commute vows to make pilgrimages to the Holy Land in favour of staying in the West to fight the Holy Roman Emperor. Eventually, the Hohenstaufen were brought low, their luck running out in 1268, when Frederick's 16-year-old grandson, Conradin, the titular king of Jerusalem, was captured by papal allies during fighting for rule of Sicily, taken to Naples and beheaded. It would be difficult to think of a greater inversion or even perversion of the original mission of crusading than a Latin king of Jerusalem losing his head in a war against the Pope. But that was the way the world was moving. From the mid-13th century onwards, the Crusader states of the East entered a terminal decline. Geopolitics in Syria and Palestine were changing radically, in part thanks to disruptions caused by the rise of the Mongols. In 1244, the city of Jerusalem was invaded and sacked by the Turks of Khwarazm, who had been displaced and forced out of Central Asia by the Mongol advance. Then from the 1260s, a new ruling dynasty in Egypt the Turkish slave-soldier caste known as the Mamluks, began to chip away at the remaining coastal redoubts and fortresses of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, County of Tripoli and Principality of Antioch. Over the course of three decades, they ground the vulnerable and increasingly neglected Crusader cities into the dust, culminating in a huge siege of Acre in May 1291, which ended in a forced evacuation by sea. Thereafter, the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem relocated to Cyprus, where it withered away. Crusading to the east was dying, and its institutions were following suit. In the early 14th century, the Knights Templar were destroyed in a cynical and systematic attack led by the French government of Philip IV, the Fair, whose ministers accused Templar leaders of blasphemy, sexual deviance and gross misconduct. Although many writers from the 14th century to the 16th fantasised about a new age in which the spirit of 1096-9 would once again descend and all Christendom could reclaim Jerusalem, it would be 1917 before another Western general could walk through the gates of the Holy City as conqueror when Edmund Allenby strolled in to take command on behalf of the Allies who had driven out the Ottomans in the First World War. Yet at the same time, crusading continued, and in some cases, even in its original form, against non-Christian infidels. The Teutonic Knights continued their war on pagans in the Baltic well into the 15th century. The Knights Hospitaller set up an international headquarters on Rhodes, where they fought running sea battles, policing the Mediterranean against Muslim pirates from Asia Minor and North Africa, under the guise of a holy war. And when the Ottoman Empire began to sweep towards Eastern Europe, Christian knights rallied to the cause with crosses pinned to their plate armour. But just as often, crusading became a badge to wear to give any war fought by a Christian power an added gloss of legitimacy. In 1258, when Pope Alexander IV wished his allies, including the Republic of Venice, to make war on Alberigo of Romano, ruler of Treviso, he sent a papal legate to preach a crusade against Alberico in St Mark's Square, a parade at which the legate produced a bevy of naked women whom he claimed had been sexually assaulted by the Trevisan. Soon after, in the 1260s, Simon de Montfort the Younger, son of the Cathar crusader of the same name, declared his rebellion against King Henry III of England to be a crusade. A century later, Henry III's great great grandson, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, claimed to be a crusader when he went to fight on the Iberian Peninsula in the hope of seizing the crown of Castile in the name of his wife, daughter of the murdered King Pedro the Cruel. In the 1380s, the English Bishop of Norwich, Henry Despenser, led a crusade to Flanders, which was supposedly to wipe out supporters of an anti pope, Clement VII, but really, a side campaign in the long-running Anglo-French struggle known as the Hundred Years' War. The 15th century saw five crusades launched against the Hussites, followers of a bohemian heretic called Jan Hus, an early dissident theologian of what would come to be known as the Reformation. And in 1493, the Genoese explorer Christopher Columbus sailed back from his first encounter with the Americas, announcing in terms strikingly reminiscent of Crusader rhetoric, his discovery of a land of great wealth and many pagans, which could be claimed on behalf of all Christendom. And this was far from the last mention of the sea word Crusading outlived the Middle Ages and remains today a favoured trope of the alt-right, neo-Nazis and Islamist terrorists, all of whom cleave to the decidedly shaky idea that it has defined Christian and Muslim relations for a millennium. They're not right, but they're not original in their error either. Crusading, a bastard hybrid of religion and violence, adopted as a vehicle for papal ambition, but eventually allowed to run as it pleased, where it pleased and against whom it pleased, was one of the Middle Ages' most successful and enduringly poisonous ideas. Its survival is a sign of both its genius and of the readiness of people, both then and now, to throw themselves into conflict in the name of a higher cause.